1996, the movie Fargo was released, written and directed by Twin Cities natives Ethan and Joel Cohen. I'm uh, Jerry Lundegaard. You're Jerry Lundegaard? Yeah. By now, Just most people are familiar with the film's plot. It centers on a car salesman, played by William H. Macy, who hires two men, one played by Steve Buscemi, to kidnap his wife for ransom money. Things later go hilariously and brutally wrong. I guess that's it then. Here are the keys. No, that's not it, Jerry. Huh? The new vehicle plus $40,000. Yeah, but the deal was the car first, then the 40000 like as if it was the ransom. I thought Shep told you. Shep didn't tell us much, Jerry. Well, okay. But what it's many Minnesotans may not be aware of is that Fargo was based on an actual criminal case that happened in St. Paul. That was confirmed by the filmmakers themselves during an interview with Charlie Rose in 1997. This movie was not based on an actual crime. Who says? It was. Yeah. And this story is completely based on a real event. Yeah, the story is the characters, you know, we, we weren't interested in making a documentary, and the characters are really inventions um, based on this sort of outline of events. Today we look back on that historic criminal case with William Swanson author of Dial M, The Murder of Carol Thompson, which is for sale now as an ebook and paperback online and in bookstores everywhere. Additional audio excerpts are thanks to the Twin Cities TV stations KSTP and WCCO, as well as the Minnesota Historical Society. Uh, it was blood, money, and sex, as Bill Randall, the uh, prosecutor, put it. Uh, and it would, uh, it would be irresistible today. It's 9 o'clock in the morning on March 6th, 1963, in St. Paul, Minnesota, and the city is still in the grips of winter. Snow is on the ground, and the temperature hovers at near freezing, when in the upper middle class neighborhood of Highland Park, a family hears a knock on the front door. When I went, the woman was standing there with just a bathrobe and barefoot, and it was covered with blood. She'd evidently been stabbed in the throat. So we took her in, and the doctor across the street came over. As they wiped the blood away, they immediately recognized the woman as their neighbor, Carol Thompson, 34, mother of four, and wife of up-and-coming St. Paul attorney T. Eugene Thompson. She's such a sweet person. It's just a terrible thing. When paramedics arrive, they rush Carol to the hospital as detectives race to the Thompson house looking for clues. Entering through the front door, they spot a pool of blood just inside. Sitting in the blood is a live gun shell and the broken handle of a pistol. Carol Thompson arrives at the hospital as her husband, Jean, nicknamed Cotton, is working at his law offices in downtown St. Paul. The phone rings, and his neighbor tells him about what happened. Then, instead of going to the hospital himself, Gene and his law partner head to Highland Park 
first to the neighbor's house and then to his own home. There, he's told by police to stay outside. The media is first catching wind of the story as Gene arrives at the hospital about 15 minutes after his wife. Speaking to a detective at the hospital, Gene insists his wife had been in a great mood in the morning when they shared breakfast with their children. He tells the officer he has no idea who would want to hurt her or any member of his family. Down the hall in the ER, doctors remove a broken three-inch blade of a stainless steel paring knife from Carol Thompson's throat. They struggle for more than three hours to keep her alive, but she dies at one o'clock that afternoon. In Highland Park, police start the investigation. Beginning on the first floor, detectives stage a careful walkthrough of what is now a major crime scene. They find signs of struggle near the front door and blood in the kitchen. Upstairs, they find the master bedroom ransacked with drawers pulled from the dresser. In the bathroom, there's a bathtub partially filled with water with blood stains visible on the wash basin taps. The crime lab arrives. It finds footprints, one with red stains visible in the snow. Family members and friends start to gather at the home of Carol Thompson's aunt and uncle, who live a few blocks away from the Thompsons. It's there that police ask to interview Gene Thompson and his children. Gene Thompson agrees. The children all tell the same story, that their mother was wearing pajamas and a robe when they left for school that day, and that each of them left out the side door, which was always left open when someone was home. The couple's only son, 13-year-old Jeffrey, tells police he left the house first. While he said he usually walks to school to St. Paul Academy, that day his dad offered him a ride. Twin Cities residents were shocked when Carol Thompson, wife of a well-to-do attorney in St. Paul, was found brutally murdered in her home. By now, news of the attack on Carol Thompson is spreading far beyond Highland Park. It's the early 1960s, and live television is new. TV stations and newspapers in the Twin Cities jump on the story. St. Paul residents fear a serial killer is on the loose. They keep their kids inside. They take extra precautions to lock their doors. It doesn't take long for detectives to focus their investigation on Gene Thompson. Despite his outward image as a family man, several witnesses tell police that Gene is a serial philanderer who has had several open extramarital affairs. The report leads police to the home of a St. Paul couple. The wife tells detectives she had a long-running affair with Gene Thompson that started after she testified at one of his trials as a witness. As media speculation swirls about the perpetrators, Carol Thompson's remains are interred at the Forest Lawn Cemetery. The ceremony is small, attended by only close friends and family, and the casket is closed for obvious reasons. Due to intense pressure from a scared public, police round up several suspicious characters for questioning, but the investigation turns up little. Police soon determine that Gene Thompson is the only credible suspect, but they have no solid evidence to back it up. 
Gene Thompson, for his part, does little to ease the detective's suspicions when, three weeks after Carol's murder, he issues his first extended public comments on the case. And in the process, he reveals a possible financial motive behind the killing. In a six and a half page typed statement, Gene says the couple's life insurance holdings included policies on Carol worth $1.1 million, well over twice the amount of the insurance on his own life. The statement is bizarre and suspicious to police. Privately, they wonder whether the lawyer Thompson is trying to goad them into making a mistake with an early arrest. Then in April, six weeks after the crime, there is finally a break in the case when a Korean War combat veteran named Dick Anderson was implicated after being identified as the killer by a small-time crook who stole the murder weapon, a Luger pistol that Anderson used to beat Carol Thompson to death. Anderson later confessed to the murder, telling detectives that a boxer with ties to the St. Paul underworld paid him to kill Carol Thompson. The money man behind the entire thing, according to Anderson, was a lawyer named Thompson. Gene is taken into custody on June 21st on a charge of first-degree murder. Gene Thompson's trial starts in late October, and it is a complete media circus. Reporters cover every courtroom coming and going, every witness, every development. 20 days later, a man later to be accused of the actual murder, Dick W.C. Anderson, stepped off a plane and was taken to police headquarters. The short and square-jawed Thompson, with his fedora and flat-top haircut, becomes a regular on newspaper front pages and on local television, which is just getting used to the new technology of live TV and the concept of breaking news. The trial lasts six weeks, and its most riveting testimony is provided by Dick Anderson, the alleged killer. Here is the story he tells. Anderson testifies that he was paid $3,000 by a boxer called Norman Mastrian to kill Carol Thompson. If he made it look like an accident, he'd get an extra $1,000. Anderson says he and Mastrian cased the Thompson house the night before the murder, when Mastrian promised him that the side door would be left open by Gene Thompson, giving him access to the kitchen. In the morning, it played out just as Mastrian described. Parking a few blocks away, Anderson walked to the Thompson house in the snow before the sun came up. He entered through the unlocked side door and slipped downstairs to the basement where the stairs squeaked unexpectedly. The plan was to draw Mrs. Thompson to the telephone. Her husband was gonna call her from the office at 8.30 after he and the children had left the house. When the phone rang, Dick Anderson would come up from the stairway and attack her at the top of the stairs. It didn't happen because of the squeaky stairway. 
Anderson was afraid of alerting her to his footsteps as he rose from the, from the basement. And so she answered the phone, hung up again, and went back upstairs. He found Carol Thompson sitting on the bed reading a magazine on the second floor. He says he told a startled Carol that he was a robber and instructed her to lay on her stomach and turn her head. Then, wearing latex gloves, he hit her with a length of thick rubber hose that he pulled from his pocket. Yanking off her nightgown, Anderson carried Carol to the bathroom, planning to make it look like she fell and hit her head while she was getting into the bath. But midway through the attempted drowning, he says Carol regained consciousness and managed to run down the hall. Anderson says Carol Thompson was struggling to pull on a bathrobe when he entered the bedroom, pointed a gun at her, and pulled the trigger. But nothing happened. The gun didn't fire. That's when Anderson struck Carol Thompson for the first time with the butt of his gun. As Anderson struggled to get the pistol to fire, Carol fled down the stairs, racing toward the front door. As she struggled with the chain lock, Anderson approached her from behind, hitting her several times and knocking her down. He then stabbed Carol multiple times with a paring knife he grabbed in the kitchen. On the witness stand, Anderson is asked, after you had pulled her away from the door, what occurred? Anderson said, I commenced hitting her. With what were you hitting her? with the butt of the Luger. You hit her more than once? Yes, sir. After you struck her with the Luger, what did she do? She took off her diamond ring. She said, here, take this. Did you take it from her? Yes, sir. What happened at the time you took it from her? I think I dropped it on the floor there. After dropping the diamond ring, what did you do? I hit her again. Was she standing at this time? She was in a kneeling position. She said, oh, God, help me. Leaving Carol for dead, Anderson went to clean himself up in the bathroom when Carol, barely alive, escaped out the side door and ran for help. Anderson tells the jury he left the house in a panic the same way he got in, leaving his bloody footprint in the snow. The prosecution rests its case shortly afterward. Then it's the defense team's turn. And in a surprising move, Gene Thompson himself takes the stand. For more than 11 hours, Cotton testifies at length about he and his wife's complete courtship, his sometimes troublesome relationship with Carol's over-attentive parents, his business and educational background, and his financial dealings. He denies having anything to do with his wife's murder. The case then goes to the jury. Then, in a bizarre move, the defendant, whose fate is at that exact time being judged by the jury, agrees to sit down with TV reporters for a 25-minute long interview. In a strange back and forth, Thompson answers the reporters directly on a number of subjects, some of them odd, 
considering the crime he's accused of committing. Do you feel a sense of relief now that the testimony is over and everything is out of your hands? Yes, I'm very glad that the trial itself has been concluded. I realize that that's not quite true, but I'm very glad the testimony is over with and that there soon it'll be in the hands of the jury. Gene Thompson is relaxed and composed as he talks to reporters about his background and the case. He's elegantly dressed and smoking a cigarette. Well, for a long time there, I, I didn't do anything. Uh, I was not mentally or physically in a position really to do anything. Then as the situation began to improve and I, I've been occupying myself with children, trying to get to know them, trying to set up a home for them again. They have done remarkably well. It is so maddening, both because he wasn't ad asked any, you know, really meaningful questions, and the fact that he used 25 minutes to basically justify and lie about what he was and what he did is just, you know, it just makes my skin crawl. The last nine months must have been a fantastic strain on you. What's kept you going? Essentially three things. First of all, as I said, I have a strong belief in God. Second, I truly believe that justice will be done. And last, I know that I'm the only parent that my children have that will be available, available to supervise their growth, to help them become responsible adults in this world. And I've just had to. After deliberating just 12 hours, the jury finds Gene Thompson guilty of first-degree murder, and he's given a life sentence. His four children, not believing their father's guilt, will be cared for by their grandparents as Gene Thompson serves out his time at the Stillwater State Prison. For the next 20 years, Gene Thompson would try to maintain a relationship with his children, including son Jeff, who becomes a criminal prosecutor and later a judge. Things are understandably distant, but the family does remain in contact. After all, Jeff would later say, he is my dad. But Gene Thompson never admits his guilt, even to his family, which leads to a confrontation between Gene and three of his children in 1986, a few years after his parole. The purpose was uh, for him to prove to us that he really had been wrongly convicted. This was going to be his one chance. Jeff Thompson and two of his sisters hear Gene out but walk away mostly convinced of their dad's guilt. I think we've managed to compartmentalize 
the uh, damage and uh, are willing to deal with him as a human being, but at arm's length. When Gene Thompson dies in 2015 at the age of 88, he has only occasionally talked to his children for the last couple of years. The paid newspaper obituary that Jeffrey Thompson writes does not mention his mother's murder or his father's conviction. It closes simply with a quote from Oscar Wilde that reads, every saint has a past and every sinner has a future. Reporting for Historical Markers Radio, I'm Jennifer Johnson. This podcast was based on the book Dial M, The Murder of Carol Thompson, which is on sale now as an ebook and paperback online and in bookstores everywhere. William Swanson is also the author of two other true crime books, Black, White, Blue, The Assassination of Patrolman Sackett, and Stolen from the Garden, The Kidnapping of Virginia Piper.